So we're talking about humility this morning. And it's opposite pride. Pride kills and destroys. There's nothing good about it. Pride has been called the mother of all evils. And that's not an understatement. Take, for example, the pride of our famed World War II General Douglas MacArthur. He was chased down to the Philippines, evacuated actually, so that he wouldn't be captured. And as he walked to the landing craft that was taking him away, he uttered three famous words, I shall return. And while we take, in a certain sense as Americans, we've always looked at that in a positive light because of the victory that came later. Historians actually call us to, to reflect a bit more deeply upon those words. His, it's an egotistic declaration. And it cost many American lives. It's the part we don't think about. There's always a human cost to pride. Uh, historian Captain William Toddy mentions this. It's a recent article that uh, World Magazine did. He says, uh, the, the three-word oath, I shall return, forced President Roosevelt to, a strategic can, to, abo- to abandon a strategic campaign of island hopping. They, they wouldn't necessarily hit every island where the Japanese were at because some islands were, were insignificant to the overall war. The Philippines were insignificant to the overall war effort. And yet those, war, those words caused us as a nation to, to provide great, to make great sacrifices. Um, it's estimated that that decision lengthened the war by months and cost tens of thousands of lives. MacArthur's promise to return to the Philippines delayed the Okinawa offensive at least six months. So the war was six months longer than it needed to be. And during, during, those six, during that, the campaign to retake the Philippines, we burned through tremendous military resources that, that we needed to rebuild, take time to rebuild before we could launch the Okinawa offensive. That's just the capital expense. There were 60,000 American casualties in the taking of the Philippines. 60,000. And then... There are the 150,000, 150,000 Filipinos who died while we retook the island. That was non-strategic. Also, General Douglas MacArthur could come back and pridefully say, I told you so. That's a graphic example. But history is full of these. Full of these. Where someone in authority makes some prideful declaration and others pay the price for that prideful declaration. You and I don't have that kind of authority or that kind of influence. That's a good thing. But we treat others in our relationships like General Douglas MacArthur treated the Philippines. We make bold, prideful declarations. And then others pay the price. Relationally is what I'm referring to. 
if, if you and I are going to honor God, we must learn to kill sin in all its forms and to walk in humility so that God can use you and use me to preserve, protect, and restore unity. You see, pride just has a high human price to pay. Relationships are shattered by pride. Feelings are crushed by pride. Testimonies for Christ are badly damaged by pride. There's just nothing good. Nothing good. So this, this morning, we're going to look at three pride-killing disciplines that, that you need to, to implement. You need to practice in your life so that you can walk in humility and be used by God to promote unity, restore unity for God's glory ultimately, but also for the good of your neighbor, the good of your church, your witness to the world, and your own spiritual growth. You know, the pride that remains within you stunts your spiritual growth. There's just a tremendous number of reasons why we must build into our lives pride-killing disciplines. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention three of these this morning. Before we get to those, we must understand that to maintain unity, and when I say maintain, it could be that you have to restore it, but I'll just use the word maintain in a general sense. To maintain unity, you must walk in humility. To maintain unity, you must walk in humility. There is an inseparable relationship between unity and humility. Understand that. You can't break that. You can't hide, uh, hold on to pride in any form and have unity. To have unity, you must have humility. You must give up pride. When you encounter a conflict or a circumstance that, that could easily divide, easily bring division, you need to immediately check your heart for pride and, and actions for the presence of pride and seek to walk in humility. And I know what happens in hum- when you get to a conflict because I've been there, beloved. I, I, I am right with you. I am not, a, not um, advanced beyond pride. So that's still a struggle in my life as well. But I know what happens when we talk about pride. You think of the other person. Oh, I wish so-and-so would hear this message. Please don't do that. Please apply this to your life. Prideful attitudes and actions will inflame an already hot situation. But humble attitudes and actions will soothe and, and calm and will help all those involved in, in a manner all those involved to act in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ for for his glory. So see with me the unbreakable connection between between humility and unity. And there's a corresponding connection unbreakable between pride and conflict where there is pride. You will have conflict unavoidable. And I want you to see this from Scripture so you're not just taking my word for it. My word isn't uh, anything that you would orient your life around. Turn to the book of Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 4. We want to orient our lives around the word of God. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be be looking at verses 1 to 4. I'll I'll be in various texts this morning. Each one of these, we could do a a full-depth sermon just on the text. Each one of these texts. But I want to give you the bigger picture 
to see to help you see how big of a problem pride is and to see how much we need to pursue humility in order to obtain unit the unity that God calls us to to preserve the unity that he has purchased as a better more accurate way to understand that you have probably read Ephesians 4 before but what I want to point out this morning is that Ephesians 4 is given to a church that's struggling with some conflict. Ephesians 4 is given to, to, to a church to, to help it maintain unity in, in, that, in that context. Now, just, let's just read it together. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 4 shows us the context is about preserving unity. Preserving unity. What does is, what is Paul say there? What is he exhorting the believers to do there? He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Remember that the, the term walk, when, he, when, the, when the apostle uses that term walk in a context like this, he's talking about living. It's a metaphor. He's talking about living. You are to live your life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, now this is how Paul encourages us to live. We looked at other texts where he encourages us to walk in love. Right? We are to walk in the Spirit. Here he's saying to walk according to the calling with which you have been called. So there's something about our calling that leads to humility, because that's the first thing he mentions, that we need to understand. What is it about our calling? Now, what is he talking about calling? You must understand that your calling that influences how you live. God wants you to live in accordance with your calling, how he has called you and what is he talking about there when he talks about calling uh, to live in accordance with the calling with which you have been called the word calling is referring to your salvation is referring to God calling you to himself now I want to go to some other texts so we're going to come back to Ephesians 4 but turn to Romans chapter 8 for a moment I want to show you how the apostle is using the word calling in Ephesians he uses it in, the, in a similar fashion in Romans chapter 8. And I'll just pick up in verse 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now just think about that. That, that is a sense of which Paul is using the word calling in Ephesians 4. Right? In that context of, of Romans 8 helps us to see that. It's God's calling us to himself. And it shows the whole, kind of the whole link of salvation from predestination to glorification. And part of the key aspect of that is his call, his calling us. When the Lord speaks, we listen. 
This is an effectual call right? unto salvation is what, what uh, Paul is referring to. So to think about that a minute. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, as he read through that. Who's doing the action? God. Who's receiving the action? Us. What part do we play? Nothing. That's the connection that Paul wants us to make with walking in humility. You had absolutely nothing to do with whether he called you or not. Let's drive this home a little bit more. Go to Titus 3. Titus 3. I'm going to look at or read verses 1 to 7. And as I read Titus 3 verses 1 to 7, I want you to to listen to see what part Paul played or you played or the believers on the island of Crete played in their salvation. Let's begin in verse 1. Paul writes to to Titus, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Just stop there. That is a good resume, isn't it? That's exactly the type of person you want to hire, isn't it? That's exactly the type of person that you want to adopt into your family, isn't it? You want to bring to your home and hang out with your children. Not. That's our contribution. Look at the great contrast. It begins in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Though you and I were like the last on the list, if you look at as far as we as what we deserve in salvation, we're way down. We're way down in the pit of hell, effectually, and God calls us from there. You're a rotten scoundrel before God called you, and yet God called you. That's true of all of us. We tend not to think that way because of pride. But that's exactly what the scripture is so clear about. You can take credit for nothing. Nothing. And you're calling. Absolutely nothing. Now, our caveat, I'm not downplaying the need for belief and repentance. I'm merely showing what the scripture says when it talks about consider your calling. According to your calling, you have nothing to take credit of. I will say also that when you do exercise faith, which is absolutely necessary for salvation, Ephesians 2 tells us that faith is a gift of God. It's not of yourself. So even when you consider believing faith, which is necessary for salvation, that's not something you can take credit for. I want to drive this home a little bit more because it's we just we, we have to push down pride. We have to be killing pride. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians a minute. It's a lot of turning in your pages and your Bibles, I know. But it's worthwhile for you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
verse 26. He's going to use the word, Paul's going to use the word calling in the same exact sense. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So again, here's a, a profile, right? You could put this on your resume, spiritual resume. Hey, you're not noble, not mighty, not strong. Hey, as the world looks at you, you're a nothing. Living in nothing land or flyover country, however you want to put it. God chose you to, as a nothing, as someone who is despicable, as someone who is not wise, not noble, not strong, not wealthy, so that he could magnify his grace in you. Again, you contributed nothing, nothing. This is how Paul uses the word calling. Understand that salvation is the greatest gift in all the world. God cannot give you a greater gift to take you from the depths of spiritual mire, to take you from your destiny in hell, to rescue you from that, to bring you into his family by faith in Jesus Christ, so that he could treat you as a co-heir with Christ, giving you all the riches of heaven, and you would dare turn your back on that, and that's what people do. The greatest gift by the greatest person to the lowliest, least deserving people. And yet those least deserving people, unless God works in our lives, we just turn our back. In pride, we think we don't need it. We don't need God. And we all would have been there unless God would have softened our hearts to call us. If you're in Christ today, he specifically called you. And when he called you, you believed. But without that call, we would all be in the same place, stuck in pride. In the Ebridge this week, I wrote a little article on pride. Pride will blind you. It will totally blind you. Right? That's one of the reasons that we need each other. We need the Holy Spirit. We need God working in our life. But we need each other. Because we often don't see our pride and we need other believers to help us walk with Christ and sometimes help point out our prideful thoughts and thinking. God rescued us from a place of pride where we didn't even know that we were headed to hell. And he rescued us in his grace and his love. He gave you faith and you believed. You were saved. There are some here this morning who don't know Christ. And so I'm calling, I'm pleading with you to see your pride. Don't turn down the greatest gift that God has ever given. You know, the Pharisees wanted some sign from heaven. 
Well, the greatest gift that God was ever going to give them was staring them in the face. They crucified the Lord of glory because of the blindness of pride. And you will do that as well. If you do not listen, you will walk out of here, you will forget this message, and you will go on living your life how you want to live. You might come back. You might read the Bible. But those things do not make you acceptable to God. They do not convert the soul. God wants you to stop being prideful. Come to a place of humility and believe in Christ. You know, without humility, none of us would believe. None of us. Humility is so essential to our walk with the Lord and our relationship with others. We must live in humility. So go back, all that to say, go back to Ephesians 4. Where Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, because he's writing from prison, implore you, he's writing to the Ephesian believers, but by application, that's you. Insert your name there. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So what's he saying? Put it all together. He looked at your calling. It's all of God, none of you. You can take credit for nothing. So he's saying your calling was in humility. So when he says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, and he's saying to walk in humility. And that's actually the first thing he mentions. You see that? In verse 2, to walk with all humility. So he not only uses the imagery of our calling to motivate us to humility, he's specifically saying it with all humility. Yes, there are other traits and characteristics, habits there, but humility is the first one because humility is what he's trying to get at with our calling by pointing us to our calling. Live in a way that's in accordance with your calling. Don't live in a way that's contrary to your calling. If you're a Christian and you walk in pride, you are a hypocrite. That's what the Lord's word says. You're a child of God. And why does Paul point us to humility? That's because humility is essential to our relationship with the Lord. And it's essential to every other thing the Lord wants to do in our life. You can't walk in the spirit without humility. You can't walk in love without humility. You can't have a good relationship, a healthy relationship with with God without humility. All of the fruits of the Spirit are reliant upon humility. And as applying it to to biblical conflict resolution, you you will never have unity. You will never have restoration of relationship as long as pride is there. Humility is absolutely needed. Humility is one one of those blossoms of the Christian life that encourages other flowers of the Christian life to grow. You could, you could consider it a fertilizer if you want to change the, myrtle, uh, change the, uh, the analogy. Humility is the fertilizer through which the fruits of the Spirit then blossom in our lives. Pride is like weed killer on flowers right? of your life. It annihilates it, leaves it destitute and brown and with very little growing. But humility preserves it restores and is essential to unity. Now, I, I just to press this home, I want to give you a very graphic illustration using an Old Testament story of how we need to approach our pride. In the book of Judges, we read of a Canaanite general 
by the name of Sisera, who enslaved and, and really just tormented the Israelites. And the Israelites cried out, and God gave them judges to rescue them, specifically Deborah and Barak, to rescue his people. And he gave them victory over Sisera. So when the battle came, Sisera had all his weapons, his chariots. The Israelites didn't have any of that. But despite all that, God gave the Israelites the victory over Sisera. Sisera had to flee from his chariot. And as he fled, running away from the battle, he came upon uh, an Israelite, you'd call it a, a tribe probably. And there was an Israelite woman with her tent there. She greeted him and offered him refuge. And he pridefully thought she was protecting him. If you've read that story, you know where I'm going. He laid down. She even gave him something to drink because he was thirsty. He was weary. He was tired. And he slept. And as he slept, she took a peg and a hammer and secretly went into that tent and put that peg through Sisera's temple, hit him so hard the peg went into the ground, Scripture says. And he died. Graphic. But I want to keep you to keep that image in your head when you think about pride. Sisera, the prideful general, is just like your pride. When you confront it in one area and win victory, it's going to seek refuge somewhere else in your life. It's going to seek shelter. But you got to find it wherever it exists and drive a peg with a hammer through it and kill it. And with that analogy, I'm not saying you can ever be rid of pride no more than you can be that you can be free, totally free of sin in this life. But as we are to be killing sin in our lives, we are to be killing pride wherever it exists. Be that relentless. Don't show pride quarter. Don't give it rest. You know, we're so good about compartmentalizing our lives. Well, this is how I act and think on Sunday, and then the rest of the week we do what we want. And, and even though those of us are growing in Christ and understand that, that God sees all things, all parts of our lives, we, we can compartmentalize our lives so that, that we kind of say, it's, you know, it's okay to be prideful over here. I just won't bring it over here. But what you do is you, you give it rest. If Sisera would have had rest, he, he could have regained his strength and rallied troops around him to fight back. Don't let pride have any quarter, any rest in your life. If you're not relentlessly killing pride, it's going to flee. It's going to live on in other areas of your life and do a lot of damage in your life. Again, we're on the main point that, 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 that unity must is dependent upon humility, where there's pride, you have conflict. You can go to many other places of Scripture to see this. Proverbs 13.10 With arrogance comes only quarreling. Proverbs 16.18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 28.25 An arrogant man stirs up strife. So when you encounter conflict, big or small, be on the lookout for pride. There's Sisera there somewhere. If you see, if you see it, kill it. Do not let pride reign in your life walk in humility to promote and preserve unity in your family in your church and in your relationships for the glory of God
And beloved, I must, must call you to do this because God commands that you do this. He calls you to walk this path. We'll see in a moment that God is opposed to the proud. So if you say, no, 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 I've, I've had it. I deserve better in this, than this conflict. They shouldn't have talked to me that way. You start doing that and you put yourself in direct opposition to God. That's not a place you want to be as a believer because we know who wins that. And really, it's not about winning. It's about honoring, honoring, honoring our Lord or God or living. If we hold on to pride, well, then we're going to shame his name. So to preserve and promote unity, you must walk in humility because you can't have unity without humility. Now, I want us to show you, point out three disciplines that you and I must have in order to help us walk in humility. The first one of these is that we must un properly understand humility. If we're going to walk in humility, we must understand what humility is. Humility is like a high-end Rolex watch. I was trying to look up expensive watches, and I was shocked at how expensive they can get. Rolex, Rolex is actually not that expensive compared to some of the more pricier ones, but just use the analogy, okay? If you were going to buy an expensive Rolex watch, you would want to know exactly what the characteristics of that were because there's a lot of imitations out there. There are a lot of people who will, who will take your money and give you your Rolex, except it won't be a Rolex. It'll be an imitation. It'll be a fake, okay? especially if you are traveling overseas and find a Rolex for a really good price. That's like humility. Humility is priceless, but there are a lot of imitations out there. A lot of fake humility. So the best way to be on guard against pride or fake humility is to know what humility really is. So the Greek word for humility is, is a combination of two words that really mean just lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. Someone would put it like this way, humble-mindedness. Another commentator, commentator describes humility as the grace of lowliness. The grace of lowliness. He calls it a grace because really it's a gift from, from God. Alexander Strzok describes it as the virtue of modesty. It is the opposite of conceit, arrogance, high-mindedness, or selfish ambition. And humility is both a mindset and an action or a way of living. How you think about yourself and others will determine how you live or act around those other people and the things that you say. Um, Strzok explains that humility is a lowly or modest attitude towards self, God, and people and a corresponding lifestyle that accords with the attitude of mind. How you think about yourself in relationship to God and other people will determine how you act and the things that you say. That's true all the time, but it's especially true in dealing with a tense situation or a conflict. How you think about them, how you think about God will determine how you act in that situation. Now, in our relationship to God, humility is the only right thinking and logical response to the creature before the creator. He's the holy God. He created you. So humility is the only right response before God. And it's pride that convinces us that that's not true and that uh, turns the relationship all around. We are sinful creatures. He is a holy creator God. We're small. He's infinite. 
We know little. He knows all things. So let's confess our creatureliness, our smallness, our unworthiness and complete dependence on him, our infinite and holy God. Humility also affects the way we we think about and react to other people. Humility is modest and self-effacing toward others. Humility understands that all talents, gifts, and successes are gifts from God, for which it is uh, great. Uh, humility is continually grateful and gives God the glory. How do you react when others have a better gift or stronger in their gift than you are? Humility rejoices because humility sees God has given that gift. And he's given you your gift. Your gift is not insignificant. But we always tend to compare ourselves. But when you see someone else with a, with a greater, stronger gift or a more prominent gift or have an opportunity to, to have a more public uh, venue for their gift, are we jealous? So that's pride. It's an identification of pride. Or do we rejoice that God has, has granted that person his grace to serve him in that capacity. Beloved, a humble mind is a servant mind. When you're around others, especially in a conflict, do you think about how can I serve this person in this moment? Or are you just thinking about how you serve you? Right? We've all been there. We know that the, the most important person in the flesh is ourselves. In a conflict, you're just thinking about you. That's pride, blinding you. We must think about others. We must serve others. Think about how to serve them. Is that difficult? Absolutely. It's impossible unless you're walking in the Spirit. You're asking God for help to do those things. Now, there's two things that are, that are obvious, and yet I need to point them out. So which is it? Is it obvious or not obvious? I don't know, but I need to point them out. First one is you weren't born humble. You are born in pride. So humility is not going to come to you naturally. It's a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual de- uh, development. It's a spiritual discipline, humility is. It means you're going you're to have to work at it. It's not going to come naturally. The other thing that I need to say um, with that regard is that humility, uh, the source of humility is God himself. You see, Proverbs 14.12 tells us that there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Hear that. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. So if we depend upon our own counsel, our own wisdom, our own our own knowledge, which seems right, the end of it is what? Damnation and judgment. That's where the world is heading. They think they're going the right direction. But God's word says that way is going to end in death. But God grants humility. He's the source of humility. So this isn't like go home and stir up your own humble humbleness. This is, this is about you pleading with God to change your heart that he would grant you humility. Lowliness of mind that expresses itself in service to others. Our Lord is the perfect model of this. Think about what he did. Jesus, the king of heaven, washed his disciples' feet. John 13. Turn there just a minute. You need to see your Lord's example. He blazes the trail for us.
Let me begin reading in verse 3 of John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth with God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Think about that. Why did the author of John, of the Gospel of John, point out in verse 3 what he did? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. You know, if we were going to write that, or if we were in that situation, if God had said, I'm giving all things into your hands, we would have turned to the disciples and said, put our feet up and said, you need to wash my feet. Wash my feet. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? With full knowledge that all authority, and here the all is not limited by anything, it's all authority, had been given to Jesus. That means he had infinite authority. He did what? He took the lowliest job in the house. He took the job of a slave removed his clothing, put on a towel so he could properly wash and dry the disciples' feet. He had another lesson in in there as well that we won't touch on right now. But he's your example. If the king of heaven, who had all authority, there's no other higher authority, if he came down and did the lowliest job that there was to do, wash the disciples' feet, That's the example you need to follow. You can never, if he did that, you can never say, that job's too lowly, or I'm too important for that job. I'm too important to come down to their level. You can never say that. And look at why he did this. There was another spiritual lesson he was doing, doing, but I want you to see what he was doing, because he tells us, verse 12, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? And they're like, well, yeah, you washed our feet. No, there's something more significant. 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, notice he's, he's saying, I'm the Lord. I have that authority. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus demonstrated the path of humility that believers are called to one another. He did it as an example. He did it so you would have absolutely no excuse for saying, no, can't do that. That's too low of a job. I'm too important. No, he offended me too much. I'm not going to him again. No. There's no excuses. Jesus just just ripped the carpet from underneath your feet of excuses. You're called to follow his example. There's one more passage I want to point you to to see the great humility of our great God. Go to Philippians 2. We talk about the humility of Christ. There's no greater passage to go to I mean, John 13 is impressive. 
But Jesus goes further than that, than just to serve his disciples. He dies for them. And Paul draws us out of Philippians 2. But I want you to see that while this passage is about Christ, the, the purpose that Paul put the, this, these truths about Christ in here is to motivate you to unity. Because look how he starts out. Verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being what? Of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So he kind of uses all these various terms to talk about what? Unity. Unity. Then he, then he gets into some practical things. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Here it is, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant or slave and being made in the likeness of men being found in the appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name but think about that king of heaven came washed the disciples feet but he he went lower he died and he died to save you. And his death saves you. His death also shows you that mindset which Christians are to have in our life. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And when that text talks about he didn't, that he didn't think, he didn't consider, uh, he was in the form of God. He did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He didn't stop being God. I mean, that's not what it's saying. Paul is saying all of the glory, all of the special privileges that God deserves, Christ let it go. He let it go. And he did so to die for our sins, and he did so to give us a, a demonstration on how we are to live towards others in a humble way. That's, that's Paul's point here. Look at Christ. You will grow in humility as you learn about Christ and what he did, what he did for you, what he did for me. Oh, beloved, don't be in, unmoved or indifferent. Don't be cold to these truths. Allow the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ to, to expose pride and move you to greater humility. Seek to be a doer of the word. And, and don't be fooled by false humility. False humility kind of still focuses on itself. You act humble, but it's all still all about you. That's kind of like what social media is doing right now to, especially teenagers are more prone to this, it seems like. there's The incidence of, of teen suicide is high. Why are they high? Because they don't have enough social likes on whatever social media they're doing. It sounds... It, 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 I'm not belittling them, but that, that's the world they live in is, is their worth is tied up in, into what people think of them. Their worth is tied up into how many likes they have. 
And it motivates kids to do things they shouldn't be doing and posting them. And ultimately, it leads some to kill themselves. And, and it's not because they hate themselves. Most suicides are because people love themselves too much. They love themselves too much. They don't love God. And they don't love the people around them. That might be a new thought for you. And I won't say it's an absolute truth. But it's often true. That's fake humility. Real humility will be okay with not being liked if you're living for Christ. You focus on Christ. You follow His example. Our world promotes pride. So so if you want to learn about humility, loneliness of mind, look at your Savior. I'm only in point two. To walk in humility. Let me just get started with this. Maybe we need to dwell on this more than more than one week. To walk in humility, you must earnestly desire humility. You must earnestly desire it. You know, our world promotes pride in all its forms. You know, we read the 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 book of Corinthians, First Corinthians, and we look at how all the various ways in which they were sinning because they were conformed to the culture of Corinth. There's one area, really more than one, but one major area in which we today as Christians are being conformed to the world is the issue of pride. And in, in the future, I'll, I'll talk through how we how we foster that, how we cultivate humility. But I just want you to see that you must desire humility. You can, you can see the, the, on the pages of Scripture that God calls you to humility. You can see the example of Christ and how He lived humble. But unless you actually want to live that way, you won't. You must desire humility. So what I'd like to do is, is just help motivate you to desire humility. The first thing I want to point out is that humility is essential to a beneficial relationship with God. It's absolutely essential. Without humility, you never call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Without humility, you don't grow to be more Christ-like. And as I mentioned earlier, first, uh, that God is opposed to the proud. That's 1 Peter 5.5. 5. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, which is really an echo of Proverbs, says God is opposed to the proud. You cannot foster pride in your life or maintain pride or allow the Cicero of pride to live in your life and have a healthy relationship with God. What does humility towards God look like? Well, it looks like the fear of, of, of the Lord. Uh, reading from the Lexi Standard Bible, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the mouth of the perverted words I hate. Now the author of Proverbs wrote that, but it's God's words. He's saying, I hate pride. Why does God hate pride? Pride robs God of His glory. Pride robs God of His glory. We take credit where no credit is due. 
we want to declare victory and say, yeah, I did that. I mean, a, a good illustration of this is just our our sports arena, which is kind of like the um, the temples of old. Some form of sports is an idol, you know, is an idolatrous event. But guys, because how people follow it, I'm not saying that's all bad. It's not, not inherently bad. But when a superstar scores a touchdown, they revel in what they've just done. They take all the credit. And yes, they had to work and maintain those skills, but who gave them the ability to do that? Who gave them the physical ability, the size of some of these people? They didn't, can't take credit for that. They can build some of that, but they can't take credit for their stature. God did that. And yet they'll take credit for it. Even while the team, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a team sport, but you wouldn't know that by looking at how some people celebrate their touchdowns. So that's just an illustration. Think about what, Jesus, what God says. Isaiah 13, 11 says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the pride of the arrogant and bring low the lofty pride of the ruthless. God's going to annihilate it. If you're a Christian this morning, you should say, Hallelujah. Lord, do it. Do it in my life. Do it in my life today. Listen to God's words in Jeremiah 50, 31. Behold, I'm against you, O arrogant one, declares Lord Yahweh of hosts, for your day has come, the time when I will punish you. Personifying those who are arrogant. Daniel 4, verse 37. Talks about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was an arrogant man. Prideful man. A man who built up statues and said people had to worship them. Very prideful man. You, you can make a case that he might be the most prideful man in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Not that we want to start a competition like that. But, he, but, but hear what he says at the end when God has dealt with him. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor, not me, King of Heaven, for all his works are true, and his way is just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You see, we're either going to be humbled in this life in reverential worship to God. Or if you refuse to be humbled in this life. When you die, you're going to meet God as your judge. And he's going to humble you then. You will not be able to stand before him. You will be found guilty of the crimes against you. And you will face punishment for eternity. In God's grace, he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar on this side of eternity. We will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Don't be that person who is so prideful that you will, you will say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. No, you're not okay. God is opposed to you if you're proud. But know this. Humility opens the door to his grace. Again, I go back to 1 Peter 5.5. 5. God is opposed to the proud. Here's a contrast. But gives grace to the humble. You're not worthy of salvation. But if you will call out upon the name of the Lord, he will save you. 
because he's gracious to save you. And believers, you're not worthy of sanctification. But if you'll humbly ask the Lord to grow you and sanctify you, he, he will do it. He promises to do it. Listen to this. God's word. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. From Isaiah 66, verse 2. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what humility does. Contrite speaks of being very humiliated because of your sin. It's just broken before God. It causes a trembling of his word. That is an eagerness to listen and eagerness to do. God wants to kill your pride. You must be killing your pride. One of the Puritans said, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I'm going to change that a little bit. You must be killing pride or pride is going to be killing you. Pride is going to be destroying all the relationships around you with God and with others. Be killing pride. Promote humility. And we'll talk more about that uh, in the next lesson. Let's pray. Our Lord, how can we even consider the, the topic of pride and humility without humility? We wouldn't listen. And any humility that we have is all of you. It's your gift, your grace, your love. Lord, I just ask that you help us to be doers of the word to examine our lives for the presence of pride, to understand what true humility is by looking at Jesus Christ. And I just ask you to help us to be, be humble, to, to have a humility of mind that then causes us to act and speak with, in humble ways, that serves others, and lives in submission to your word. God, change our hearts and change our lives even today. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Well, this morning we have the privilege of partaking of communion together, the Lord's Supper. And what a, what a good day to do it on, a day where we consider our own unworthiness. We consider the great gift the Lord has given to us. And if you're a believer in Christ today, I invite you to partake of the cup and of the bread. And those are distributed. So it's open to all. You don't have to be a member here of the church. But if you're not a believer, you know, abstain from that. Withhold that. And I also ask those who are believers to consider the relationships around you. If there's broken, we're talking about conflicts. If there are conflicts that you need to deal with, even within this own body, right? you need to do that as a priority. If there is any sin in your life that you're harboring, pride is mentioned today, but there could be others. If there are those sins that you're, that you're harboring, you haven't confessed to your Lord and God, confess those to Him and ask Him to forgive you 
before that bread and the, and the cup come around or, or withhold, you know, don't partake. This is a, a celebration, but it's a solemn celebration. Christ died for our sins. So we don't want to keep grabbing onto sin with one hand and onto Christ with the other. We must let go of sin. That's really what I'm calling us to do. And I'd like, like us to, to lead us in prayer as we prepare for this. And if there's something in your life you need to deal with before God, just ask that you, you would do that now. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we contemplate the great humility of Christ and the gift you have given us, your death, the blood that was spilt on our behalf, the body which is broken on our behalf. Oh Lord, do your work in us. Help us not to be insensitive or dull to the sins in our own lives. Even now, Lord, convict where we need conviction. Rebuke where we need rebuking. That we might turn to you and receive forgiveness of our sins for uh, our good and for your glory, for your honor. The honor that is due solely to Jesus Christ, our Lord, resulting in the praise and glory of the Father, the power of the Spirit. Oh God, be at work in our lives today. Thank you that you forgive. Thank you that you are, your love is steadfast, that you are quick to forgive and abundant in loving kindness. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.